studying the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 15. As I said, we're looking at the first seven verses. So if you have a Bible and book or app form, turn to Romans 15, and then we're going to walk through the text. But before we do that, let me pray. Jesus, we love you, and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the ultimate of all fathers, because regardless of how good our Father here was or wasn't, we all have a Father that we can run to. A Father, like in the story of the prodigal son, looks to the horizon to welcome his sons and daughters home. And so thank you that you are our Heavenly Father, and thank you again, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus. And Heavenly Father, I want to take some time just here before we get into your word, just to pray for the dads here this morning and the men who want to be dads and all of us who perhaps miss our dads or, or um, maybe just don't have the opportunity to see them like we, we have in the past or maybe walk into a time like this where we talk about dads where it just conjures up uh, hurt and angst and, um, and things that... Uh, things that were hard to live through. And so I pray for the, the hurting as well. All those kinds of things that bring us together, whether they're good or hard things today, we bring them before you. And I pray that as, as we go into um, your word, I pray specifically that the dads here specifically would be encouraged um, in this time. It is a great and um, honorable thing to be a father, but it is a hard thing. And we need much help and strength. So I pray for the dads, bless them today. And two, I pray for those men who want to be dads one day. I pray for your grace on them, if it be your will, that they would be that and realize that in their lives. I also pray again for those that miss dads because they're either living somewhere else or maybe they've, uh, they have passed. And so there is, a, there is a longing today as well for them. So I just lift them up to you. Pray as I lead this time and teach it, use me in spite of me. For your glory's sake, help all of us to listen well. And therefore, we need your help to listen because we are so apt to be distracted. So help us in that too, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been around over the last couple of weeks, you will know that we've been in the midst of a two-week series thus far on the topic of the weak and the strong. It's a topic that is very important to Paul, the writer of the book of Romans. So important that he spends two chapters in this book on the topic. So he gives it a lot of time, a lot of space, a lot of attention, a lot of weight just spent, a lot of weight in this for him. Um, and and we, again, we've been in it for two weeks and we're not even done. We've only gone through one chapter. It also seems to be a very important topic to many of you based on the emails and the, and the comments and the discussions that I've, I've had with some of you. Um, heard a lot of stuff, received a lot of stuff, and it has been helpful to many of you. Probably received more comments in connection with this two-week series in the midst of our greater study of Romans than anything else that we've gone through Romans and looked at thus far, believe it or not. Uh, for some of you, who, however, you may think, uh, two weeks is enough, let's get moving on, we're giving ourselves too much to this, but based on some of the comments and emails and conversations that I've had, I'm actually very thankful that the Holy Spirit through Paul has caused him to write as much as he has on the topic, because I think there needs to be further clarity 
things that we need to maybe hit and remind ourselves of or maybe, maybe shed a little more light on and just making sure that we get it. And so I'm thankful for that. And so with that in mind, I want you to look at, like I said, chapter 15, but we're going to read the first two verses and we're going to use those two verses to remind ourselves of some things that we have seen thus far. And then we're going to propel forward and spend the rest of our time in verses three to seven. So take a look at verses one and two. Paul writes, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him or her up. So a couple of reminders. Here's the first. The strong have an obligation to the weak. Now, who are the strong? Well, the strong are Christians who are capable with, their, with respect to their faith to believe that certain practices are legitimate for believers. That's who the strong are in context with what we've seen thus far. With the weak being Christians who are incapable, Paul actually says they have failings in certain regards of believing the same. They don't feel that same freedom. We really spent a lot of time defining the weak and the strong last week. If you weren't around, I really encourage you to go back online, watch it or listen, it, listen to it. It'll help you out. What specifically is the obligation to the weak on behalf of the strong? Well, it isn't simply to leave them alone, ignore them, uh, ostracize them, cast them aside. But as you see in verse 1, it's to bear with them. Really important phrase we'll come back to in just a second. The strong are to bear with them. As you see in verse 2, the strong are to please their neighbors, including their weak neighbors, for their good. Now, what is their good? What is the weak's good? What is the obligation on behalf of the strong to see this good achieved? Well, the good is that they wouldn't do anything out of faith, meaning that they wouldn't do anything that wasn't proceeding from faith, that they would walk in faith, for not to walk in faith would be, would be sin. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at verse 23 of the previous chapter, Paul says exactly that when he says, when who... But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the obligation for the strong is not by the freedom practice cause someone who is weak to go, well, maybe I should do that too, but I'm not really convinced. And, and in going down that path, they do something that is not from faith. And so they sin, and that is not good. And therefore, we as the strong, if you call yourself strong, the strong need to live in such a way that helps and pleases his or her neighbor. Paul actually sums it up this way in Galatians 5 when he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the obligation. I said I was going to come back to that expression or command or call to bear. It's a really important one. As you notice it in verse 1, it's an important phrase and is used by Paul in telling us that there is a burden of sorts that isn't to be carried by the weak alone, but the stronger supposed to come alongside of the weak and called to come alongside of the weak and bear the load with them. That's the call. So not just ignore, not just don't hang out with, disenfranchise, but to come alongside and bear with them, carry this load because it is a burden. A couple of additional questions necessary to ask before we move ahead. Number one, should it be the goal of the church to move the weak to a strong position? 
Well, the answer, as we saw last week, is no, just the opposite. In fact, as we read in verse 5 of chapter 14, let me read it one more time. I actually looked at this a couple of weeks ago, and we double backed and look at it again. And let me remind you one more time. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So there it is. It's not a call move from there to there. It's a call to be firmly entrenched and, and convicted and committed to your take. Whether it's a quote unquote strong take or a weak faith, a weak take, stay in it and commit to it. Why is that? Well, most importantly, for when we live and bear up with one another and don't divide, therefore, over non-essential issues, we raise up the value and the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of the gospel. That's why. Do some move from one position to another? Yes, but not always. And once again, that's not the primary goal anyways. Some people wrote me to tell me uh, some things that they thought I missed in my message last week. One of the things that I received in my inbox was the statement that it's good to have convictions. Please hear me on this. I could not agree with you more. In fact, I'm so committed to that simply because of what Paul writes again in verse 23. In verse 23 of chapter 14, he says, whoever has doubts is condemned, so doubt is not an option. I want you to be thoroughly convicted and committed, and I want you to live according to those convictions. I believe that with all of my heart. I hold to that with all of my heart. We need to live in that place because, again, living in sort of a namby-pamby sort of world, kind of walking the rope, going from here to, here to there is not an option. Doubt is not an option when it comes to things like these non-essential issues. So when I used some examples last Sunday, I was not saying that it was wrong to have those convictions. Once again, my point was that one should not leave or divide over them, for to do so would be to minimize the gospel and to do exactly contrary to what this text calls us to do and is instructing us to do. See, Westside, May we never be a church known more for its agreements on non-essential matters. For our agreements on non-essential matters won't save a damned soul in the city. And I use the word damn not to shock you, but to remind you of the positions most souls in this city live in currently. They live in a damned position. And the church can't spend time talking about non-essential matters. Time short. Can't do it. That's why we spent some time focusing. More importantly, Paul ended our text last week talking about, look, if you have the kind of faith that allows you to do certain things in regards to certain practices over non-essential issues, keep it to yourself, brother or sister. That's what he says. Got more important things to do, yo. We got to give ourselves to that. That's the point. That's the point of all that. There's something greater at hand. We need to win the weak and we need to win the strong. That's what our call is in all of this to a place where they're committed to doing the same. What should the church be known for? It's a good question. And it's the one that Paul answers next. And answering it describes how the strong specifically, but everyone in the church really, are able to bear up and live a life where the first aim isn't to please themselves but others instead. 
So what we're going to see over the next five verses are five, and I'm going to add another in the midst of it, five things that the church is to be known for. We're going to see one in verse three, four, five, six, seven, and then we're going to go have a buffet or whatever we do with our dads, right? So we sound good on that. So five things the church is to be known for. Instead of just agreement over non-essentials, five things, and in noting these five things, how we all are strengthened to live in this world where we are all called to deny ourselves for another. Here's the first. What's the first thing the church is to be known for? It's to be known for Jesus. Take a look at verse three. Paul writes there, for, really important word, he's presuming, push back. Why should I live out verse one and two, right? For, Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This answers the question most pointedly for why the strong are to bear with the weak, because that's what Jesus did with all of us. That's his point. All of us, he bore the reproaches of. You see at the second half, in the second half of verse three, Paul quotes out of Psalm 69, verse nine, when he says, the reproaches of you fell on me. That's us. Our reproaches, our sin, our disobedience fell on Jesus. All of those things coming out of ultimate weakness. And he saved us. He's our example. And as Jesus followers and as a Jesus following church, that's not only the example that we were saved by and the work saved by, it's the example we need to live out. And that's what we need to be known for in living out this. We make Jesus known both corporately and privately. And this is why the topic is so important to Paul. And should be for us too. For nothing less than the gospel is at stake. So when someone says, man, why are we talking about this so much? Because the gospel's at stake. The gospel's at stake. Let me show you. Let me prove it to you one more time. And I'll keep on coming back to this because this is the answer to the question why Paul pens so much on this one topic. Just go back. Hang a left in your Bible. Just go back to chapter 14 and look at verse 3. Where Paul says there, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And then he says this at the end of the verse, for God has welcomed him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. What is the gospel? God welcomes us. God welcomes us. He welcomes the weak and the strong. That's the gospel. So why should we welcome others? Because the gospel's at stake. To not do so, Cast dispersion on the gospel. Take a look at that verse 3, and now couple it and marry it to the verse 3 in chapter 15, for we see a similar thing, where Paul writes, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's the gospel. So how did God welcome us? He welcomed us in Christ. And that welcome in Christ came because, again, Jesus took our sins in our place for us. And so this is where Paul is 
always taking us back to. This is a gospel. This is a gospel situation lived out amongst us. And therefore, we need not to please ourselves, but our neighbor. We need to welcome one another. We need to bear with one another. Because in doing so, that's modeling Jesus. Because he bore our sins and welcomed us. See, few things evidence the gospel's reality in our lives more than does our willingness to love and welcome and bear with each other, with few things calling into question the gospel's reality more than when we choose not to. So number one, a church should be known for Jesus and the church's modeling of him. A second thing the church is to be known for is the scriptures. Take a look at verse 4. Paul writes there, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's interesting in this, um, when you spend some time in these verses, as we have, just noting all of the things that Paul talks about in them. There's a lot of nuances and layers, and he goes to a lot of places. There's a lot of phrases that are important to spend some time in. But what's also interesting in this and telling is what he doesn't say, and it needs to be noted. And one of the things that Paul doesn't say that's important for us is he never says that it's easy to bear the burden of another. He doesn't call us to something to go, it should be easy for you. In fact, just the opposite. Especially seen in this verse, it testifies to it. When it lasers in on the need for encouragement and endurance along the way. Endurance and encouragement coming by way of the scriptures. Like I said, a lot of nuances and layers. Even in this one verse alone, let me, let me just take a look and just highlight some of the nuances and layers in this one verse and do that by just asking a couple of questions. First, what scriptures is Paul referring to? Well, to help you with that, if you don't know, he's referring to what we call the Old Testament, their scriptures. That's important to note simply because some of us have a tendency to disregard the Old Testament scriptures. That's old. Or we may hang out in Psalms and Proverbs, right? They add those two bad boys in there, but they disregard 37 other books. We're okay with Psalms and Proverbs, but we have a tendency to stay away from the rest. But Paul says, no, there's endurance and encouragement that comes by way of those scriptures. Second question. Well, if that's true, how and why can we find endurance and encouragement from them? Well, the ultimate answer, and I'll give you several over the next few minutes, is because they are all brought to fulfillment in Jesus. As I was talking to a guy between gatherings today, um, just talking about his time in the Old Testament text, I said, you know, the beauty of the Old Testament is, comes when we read it in light of Jesus, that things make sense, that most of the Old Testament is just a testimony over how nutjobby we are. It's not a book of heroes. It's a book of one hero and why everybody needs the hero. And that's one of the things when we take a look at the endurance and encouragement that comes by way of the Old Testament scriptures is God wins in Christ. That all of this stuff and garbage, for the most part, there's great aspects to the Old Testament story, obviously in great men and women of faith, but so much is garbage and sin and rebellion and treachery and murder and rape and all of that stuff. And you go, this is nuts. It would be if there is no Jesus. 
And we as people, all of us here, as we're called to live a life to bear with one another, which can be difficult. My previous point, Paul doesn't say it won't be. But we find encouragement because of the, the victory of God in Christ that is our victory. So we are encouraged that way. There's another way the scriptures strengthen and encourage us that I will get to in a moment. But for now, this is why we, in part, commit ourselves to be in a church that opens up the scriptures every week and calls you to continue to do so during the week when you're scattered to wherever you're scattered. For we need to constantly be strengthened and encouraged. So the first thing that we need to be known for, focused on, where we find our strength is Jesus. The second are the scriptures. The third thing the church is to be known for it's, is its unity. Take a look at verse 5. Paul writes in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony or unity with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Uh, just so you note it, verse 5 begins a two-verse prayer of Paul. And that's the additional thing that I would add amongst the other five that the church is to be known for. It needs to be known for prayer. It needs to be a house of prayer. And Paul models this more than speaks about it. He models it because he, he begins a prayer on behalf of the Roman church. He prays for them. But what should jump out of you in this first verse of this two-verse prayer is that Paul repeats two words here that he just mentioned in verse 4. Did you pick them up? The two words are endurance and encouragement. In verse 4, he mentioned the endurance and encouragement that comes by way of the Scriptures. He says endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures. But now he prays to the God of endurance and encouragement. So which is it? Does our endurance and encouragement come from the scriptures or does our encouragement and endurance come from God? The answer is yes. Yes. Ultimately, God in, grants us endurance and grace and strength and encouragement, but it's through the scriptures. God is the actor. The scriptures are the means. He grants us both through them. Does he grant us endurance and encouragement in other ways? Yes but only in addition to the scriptures and never to their exclusion. For the scriptures are entirely sufficient. See, this is his word to us. Just if you've walked in here maybe first couple of weeks, you haven't been around for a while, we as a ministry hold that every curve on every letter is inspired by God. That it's his word to us. To which I know some of you go, Funk, give me a break, man. How do you believe that? Why would you believe that? I love that question. Welcome here. It's a perfect question. And that's why we have classes. This is a shameless plug for some of our classes. Because you deserve to have those questions answered. Why do we think this book is any different than any other book? People say, man, there's a lot of inspiring books out there. I couldn't agree more, but there's only one inspired book. There's a difference and we want to help you with that. Because why would you think this is any different than any other? I think that's a, that's a great question. You deserve to have that answered. And so that's why we have classes. But you need to know this belief leads us to come before you and also calls you in the week to spend time in it. Because this is God's word to us, bringing endurance and encouragement. But it is God being the actor. The scriptures, again, are the means. Verse 6. 
Some people I know could say and do say, well, he also speaks to us through the Holy Spirit and the community of believers, and I believe that as well. Yes, he does. But remember, the same Holy Spirit is the one who wrote this book, number one. And all we know about the Holy Spirit with assurance comes by way of the book he wrote. Peter affirms all this, by the way, when writing, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God using the authors in their context and personality, but carrying them along. Paul adds this, all Scripture is breathed out, inspired, God-breathed by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete or competent, equipped for every good work. That's why we teach it. But we also teach it not only because it's God-breathed or inspired in its production, but in, in its proclamation too. That God continues by his spirit to breathe into us by his word that he has given to us. And that's the additional reason I said I would come back to why we teach the scriptures here. As I said earlier, we teach the scriptures because the story is a great story and it ends well. But there's more. It's more than just a storybook or a book of history. It's a book that continues to strengthen us and encourage us today for it's living and active. God uses it day by day as we come to it. It refreshes us. At times it convicts us equips us, and completes us as God the Spirit works through it. One more text, one of my favorite, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I taught on this a number of years ago. Again, it's one of my favorites. And if I could be so bold, this is also my thanksgiving for you. I share what Paul says here when he writes, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I'm thankful that I'm in a ministry that allows us to open up the Bible and teach it and teach it like we believe it. And we've seen lives transformed because God keeps on working through it and we're thankful for that. So a primary practice for us, Westside, corporately and privately should be to come to this book and say, oh, Holy Spirit, speak to me through your word. I want to hear from you. Encourage me, strengthen me with the encouragement and strength that is only mine by your grace and infilling. But here's a question before we get out of this verse. To what end? To what end do we come to the scriptures by God's working through them? To what end? Well, we see the end as Paul prays in verse 5. If you look back, let me pick it up at the beginning of the verse where he, he prays, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. That's the end. That's the goal. It's not studying the scriptures for studying's sake. It's studying the scriptures as God works through them for harmony's sake, for unity's sake. I'm not, a, I'm not musical at all, at all. Um, and so I had to look up what the word harmony meant. I kind of know it. But you know those certain words where you think you know it, but you're not really sure? I asked around some of our worship staff, what's harmony? 
Like, help me out. What's, I even went to the dictionary, found a definition of harmony. Here's, here's the dictionary's definition of harmony, as you see it here in verse 5. It's the combination of uh, simultaneously sounded musical notes to produce chords and chord progressions having a pleasing effect. We get that. Right? You take some notes, some chords, you bring a bass, a tenor, an alto together, have them sing something, and in spite of their differences, what happens? Well, beautiful, beautiful music happens. So what are the harmonies that Paul prays to God come together to make beautiful music here in verse 5? All of us, the weak and the strong, all of us coming together in harmony, making beautiful music as it were, with one another. I mean, you don't want to be a part of a church that's full of altos, right? People that only play F sharp, is that a note? Play F sharp, right? You don't want that, right? That would be a boring song, boring people, everybody the same. No, we want to bring together the combination of what God has for us so we can sing beautiful songs together to belt out some great tunes, that's our, that's our goal, and that's what Paul is doing here, and that's the analogy or the image that he is painting in our minds here. But what also needs to be noted in this verse is that there is a third player in this song that we can't miss. We see who, we see who it is in the last part of the verse. The song has to be sung, sung as you look at the end of verse 5 in accord with Christ Jesus. It's a harmony with us in accord or in agreement with Christ Jesus. Again, it's not a harmony for harmony's sake alone. It's a harmony in agreement with Jesus. Jesus has to be a part of the song. No, check that. Let me put it a different way. Jesus is the song. With any song sung to the exclusion of Jesus, no real song at all. That's the idea here. The reason why I hit this and why it's important to note that is that it's very possible to be a church, quote unquote a church, that lives in so-called harmony, meaning everybody agrees with one another, yet if that harmony isn't founded and grounded on Jesus, then it's not kingdom harmony. We have to be living in accord, singing again, as it were, with Jesus, for Jesus is the one that we want to make known this singing motif carries on in verse 6, the second verse of Paul's prayer, and it shows us the fourth thing that church is to focus on and be known for, and that is its worship. Take a look at verse 6. Paul writes, That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6 is the end that we are are to seek and to achieve. This is the end, verse 6. That God be glorified. What is the end goal of you and me bearing with one another? What is the end goal of you and me focusing on Jesus, casting our gaze on Jesus, modeling Jesus, living to please one another, dedicating ourselves to the scriptures as the Spirit of God works through them, coming together. What is the end goal? To glorify God. That's why you, that's why I exist. That's why we exist, ultimately. Why are you here? If you're answering that question, not here today, but why do you exist? To glorify God. 
This is the end goal for Paul. It needs to be the end goal for all of us. And it certainly needs to be the end goal for this church in the midst of all of it. And this, again, is why Paul spends so much time on the topic of the weak and the strong, for God's glory is at stake. Nothing less than God's glory is at stake. I like how one described Paul when writing, Paul wasn't simply seeking good relationships unless you define good as that which brought glory to God. We are to exist simply for God's glory, not ours, and thus to the strong, Paul says, don't seek to please yourself, but bear with one another like Jesus. So with one voice, you glorify the God and Father of Jesus. We need to be known for our glorification or our worship. Synonymous terms where we bring glory to God in how we live. The reason why I say that is I, re- I want to remind you, it comes out of the first two verses of this fifth section of our study of Romans. If you just double back and look at verse 12, this is in fact what Paul writes there, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, verse 1 of chapter 12, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's why we exist. We need to be known for this. We're to be known for our worship coming by way of our laying down ourselves for one another. We need to be known for this. Paul concludes this text that we're in in verse 7 declaring, let me read it for you as we begin to wrap up and put a bow on it. Therefore, summary statement, therefore, with all of this in mind, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's here that Paul gives us the final thing the church is to be known for, and that is its acceptance. And once again, note who the example is here. None other than Jesus. Jesus is all over this text. He is the one that we cast our eyes upon. He's our savior. He's our model. He's the one who achieved victory for us. He's the one who strengthens us. And here we see again that he is the one who accepted us or welcomed us. And how did he do that? When it says as, really important word, as Christ welcomed you and me, how did he welcome us? While we were sinners. That's as Jesus welcomed us. He welcomed us as sinners. The strong are to welcome the weak, and the weak are to welcome the strong, again, as a display of the gospel. You know, as I wrap up, um, over the years of this ministry, I have been asked on several occasions, does your church welcome, you fill in the blank. Does your church welcome this person, this person, this person, this person? Does your church welcome them? My answer is always the same. Absolutely. Westside welcomes and accepts any and all. Regardless of your past, regardless of your present, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, regardless of your sexual preference, regardless of your vocation, or your familial situation currently. We welcome you all. But you need to know something. That is for all of us. We welcome you as a sinner. As we all are. Believing that God wants to transform you as he does me. To welcome you like Jesus, in other words. 
who welcomed us as sinners, but not to stay in that place. Jesus welcomed us so that we would be transformed into his likeness. See, in the second verse that I took you back to, that two-verse launch forward out of Romans 12, Paul says exactly what the motivation for all of this is. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the goal of Jesus. He wants to transform us. So if you're asking me, do you welcome all people to as sinners stay in that place. No, I want you to meet Jesus. And Jesus wants to see you transformed. He wants us to be changed from old to new, from lost to found, from dark to light, from rejecter of him to follower and friend of him. Any church that accepts all people yet without a longing and desire to see all people transformed isn't in fact welcoming People like Jesus welcomed us at all, only the opposite. Jesus was a friend of sinners to see them come to salvation. Jesus, the great physician, came to the sick because the sick needed a physician. I don't want anyone, I don't care where you're at right now, and I put myself firmly in the midst of that to stay where you are right now, not one of you. So we welcome everyone. And we talk a lot about Jesus. And we open the scriptures believing that the spirit again who wrote it works in us. So welcome here. Welcome here. Keep on coming back. Keep on coming back. And see if that transforming power overwhelms you. And you fall deeply in love with him. That's why we exist. So once again, to the strong, Paul's instruction is to bear with the weak. Don't seek to please yourselves and be strengthened by the five things, really six, that the church is to be known for. In addition to prayer, we're to focus on Jesus for gospel proclamation's sake. The gospel is at stake. We're to focus on the scriptures for endurance and encouragement's sake. We're to focus on harmony, unity, for testimony's sake. We're to focus and be known for our worship, for God's glory's sake. And finally, for our acceptance, we focus on acceptance for transformation's sake. Let me pray. Uh, our, Our Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, we thank you again for being our Father, our great Father, our perfect Father, And Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus. Your only begotten Son, Jesus, whom you sent to us. And Jesus, we thank you for coming in total obedience, coming, willfully coming, and bearing our reproaches. And and making a way when we had no way to come to the Father who welcomed us in you. So thank you for that. And I pray that that reality of those two things, Jesus, those two things, that the Father welcomed us through you and that you, Jesus, made a way by taking our sin in our place. I pray that those two things would be tasted in new and deeper ways so that when we think about bearing with one another, 
coming alongside of one another, living with one another, dealing with one another, that we would do with joy, do it with joy, knowing that it's a model of the gospel in very practical and tangible ways. It's the tangible kingdom here, here. So help us in that. It's not, it's not any more um, difficult than that from the standpoint of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? This is what it means. Because we receive grace, we extend grace. We receive the gospel, we extend the gospel. So I pray that we'd realize that as a church in deeper ways so that we would make an impact in greater ways in this city. And I do pray, Father, for those here who have not yet received the work of Jesus, you, Jesus, on their behalf, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, that this would be the ultimate Father's Day because they get to meet the Father for the first time. So I pray for that too. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. Praying for all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.